0: It's time to talk sci-fi and superheroes, fantasy and horror. It's time to talk movies, TV, books, and games. It's time to escape boring talk radio and journey through the wormhole into the Geek Universe. And now, the only radio talk show host to make the Kessel Run in less than 12 x Your host for Geek Universe, Jim Yelton.
1: Ladies and gentlemen boys and girls and children of all ages welcome to the geek universe i'm your host jim yelton coming to you live on tape from geek universe headquarters otherwise known as the hall of justice and we want to thank rachel our robotic announcer for that great introduction happy fourth of july to everybody I know that later on we're going to be celebrating like only we can here at Geek Universe. Also, later on in the show, we're going to get my two cents on a hot topic of the day. Not Hot Topic the Store, a Hot Topic news story. And this week, I actually, I'm going to be talking about yet another remake of a classic movie. And I know that the internet's been a buzz about this one, so we'll get into that later on as well. But before we get into all of that, it's, it's the 4th of July, it's the middle of summer, and summer, to me and to all of you, always means one thing, and that's blockbuster movies. It's the blockbuster summer movie season, and this year is the 40th anniversary of what everybody considers the granddaddy of all summer blockbuster movies. It's my favorite movie. It's the best movie of all time. It's better than The Godfather. It's better than Gone with the Wind. It's better than Star Wars. It was Jaws. And, you know, my relationship with Jaws is 40 years old because my parents were deranged and they took me to the theater to see it when I was 3 years old. And you'll hear uh, later on on the show when we talk about it that I've actually only seen Jaws now twice in a movie theater and it's been 40 years apart. So that's how much of an effect it had on me that I couldn't go back into the theater to see it for 40 years. Uh, (laughs) But actually, this week, to talk about Jaws, we were very honored on Father's Day weekend to have a conversation with Carl Gottlieb, who... uh, of course, was the one of the screenwriters, He and uh, he will get into what his role in the movie was, and and not only did he play a part in the movie, he played Meadows, who was the newspaper man in Amity, but he also, you know, like I said, wrote it, and he had a lot of input into it from a very early part of the process, and he went all the way through it. He was there for the entire five months that they were shooting on the island, and we'll hear all about that. And when we started the conversation with Carl, we started talking about how Turner Classic Movies had screenings all around. The country on Father's Day weekend to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Jaws, and I had actually just gotten back from a screening. I don't think I told you the last email I sent you. the The timing of this could not have been more perfect because I'm sure you know Turner Classic Movies had the screening today and Wednesday. I think it was, and so yeah, yeah.
2: I, think I, I think they're doing the weekend like a, a, a nationwide multiple screen event yeah screening.
1: Yeah, so I just got home about an hour ago from seeing the movie. How did it play, and was it well-attended? It, it was well-attended. and it, it Actually, it was funny because my wife went with me, and I, we were kind of joking. I actually put it on Facebook. I said, as much as I've seen this movie, I've only seen it once in a theater. And so this will be the second time in a 40-year period that I've actually seen it on a big screen. So it, it was a really... Really good screening of it. it. It looked really good. And it, it played well for the crowd, okay, too. That, that was the other thing I was interested in. Because obviously, you know, seeing it at home, it's nice to watch it. But it's much more fun to see it with a crowd of people.
2: Oh, I know. I, I When I do these things, occasionally I'll, I'll do it in connection. I'll do a, uh, a screening with an audience and then do a Q and a afterwards or before. Yeah. And I love watching it with an audience in a theater because it's like just an audience-pleasing machine
1: it really is and you know as much as it scared the crap out of me seeing it in a a movie theater when i was three years old you know i think that's one of the things that i grew to love about it was that it it had like all of those elements that were a real crowd-pleasing kind of a movie okay so i know that we in our email discussion you've been very gracious that you don't mind talking about the the fish movie let me start off by asking you obviously you know so much has been written about jaws over the last 40 years and and i I think a lot of it had to do with how troubled the production was from the get-go but let's go back even before that do you remember when the book came out and did did you have experience reading the book before you even got involved with the movie
2: no no i uh, i <clears throat> once once i once steven Uh, sent me the script, which was the combination of Peter Benchley's first draft of the screenplay plus a subsequent draft that was written by a screenwriter named Howard Sackler, good playwright and screenwriter who, you know, kind of took... Benchley was not a screenwriter. He was a novelist. And even there, he wasn't an accomplished novelist, although he got better over time. But, you know, Jaws was his first novel, so he wrote a screenplay that was very faithful to the book, and that wasn't any good. So Zanuck and Brown hired Howard Sackler, and he did a rewrite that brought up to professional screenplay standards, and he included the Indianapolis speech from his own experience as a sailor and a Navy man. He was familiar with that incident. And uh, that was a script I saw. And then when Stephen asked me to take a look at it in terms of, you know, critiquing it or, you know, suggesting rewrites I did that and then I read the novel just to see what we were all talking about so that's when I read the novel it had already been out for a while it was a big summer read in 74 73
1: yeah so uh, let me make sure that I've got the time frame in my head correctly so you were brought in first as a as a writer on the project or has Spielberg been talking to you about playing Meadows already
2: we were talking about playing minnows. You See, Spielberg and I were friends. I acted yeah. in two of his TV movies. We socialized. I was kind of, you know, I had been in Hollywood for what five, six or seven years. He was new in town. We had the same agent who put us, you know, teamed us together as a writer-director partnership. We came up, you know, we came up with story ideas, you know, we were you know, functioning. Didn't sell anything because Steven would be locked in as director, and nobody would buy a project from us. With the director locked in, right? Um, so, so, uh, so, I he, he said, you know, why don't you know? He wants you look through the script, find a part you could play. to, So you'll be on location. We can work, you know, with the extras. You can improvise because he
1: knew I was, kind of, you know, kind of an improvisational actor. Well, in, wrote- that's the the question I was going to ask because I in casting you in any part. That's the bonus of it is that you get somebody who has a, a really good strong writing background too. So if if you do need somebody to kind of pick their brain and say, okay, we, we need to punch this up a little bit. I mean, he had to have known that that was one of the good benefits of having you on set.
2: No, absolutely. I was that was that was quite quite understood. Uh, so I you know like I read I read for the executive whoever the casting director was at Universal and he approved me for the part. So I got the part of Meadows and you know and, and then. I got this call that's described in the book, you know, on a, on a Sunday morning, can you come out and meet with Zanuck and Brown? We're at the Bel Air Hotel talking about the movie. We start shooting in a couple of weeks. So I went out just to talk about the movie. He had shown them my memo. I had written a long memo about the, uh, about the picture. And, uh, the, the, what started out in the bagels and locks turned into a like six hour conversation. And the next day they offered me a rewrite job. So I, Quit my my day job, which was story editor of The Odd Couple, you know, the ABC series with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman, and got on a plane with Stephen and flew to Boston, and we lived together for the next five months, four months, making a movie, me writing at night or in writing during the day if I wasn't acting on the set uh, on that day.
1: Hey gang, this week's show is sponsored by the Now Write Writing Guide series from Tarcher Penguin. Now Write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror is the latest book in the popular Now Write series, and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre. Are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest? Or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ransby Campbell, John Skip, Joe R. Lansdale, David Brin, Vonda McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror is a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. You know, I always tell everybody when I do a workshop or I teach one of my screenwriting classes that when I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing. And you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods, like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to jumpstart your writing. So make sure to check it out. It's now write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It's available in most Barnes & Noble stores on Amazon.com. Check out the website for more information. It's NowWrite.net. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Geek Universe. I am your host, Jim Yelton, and we hope you're enjoying this conversation that we had with Jaws screenwriter Carl Gottlieb celebrating the 40th anniversary of my favorite movie, the first summer blockbuster Jaws. Coming up, Carl is going to tell us exactly what he looked at when he saw those early rough drafts of Jaws and what was in the memo that he wrote for Spielberg that ended up making its way into the hands of Zanuck and Brown, the producers of Jaws, and and what led to that fateful meeting. We're also going to break down the first 10 minutes of jaws it's a great kind of screenwriting class on how to show not tell and how to info dump a lot of information into your audience's lap without making it seem like you're just giving expository dialogue so more with carl gottlieb you're listening to geek universe
0: You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 geek. Hey,
1: we just want to let you know that this week's show is brought to you by Soylent Green. You know, if you're hungry, there's nothing else that satisfies your craving better than Soylent Green. Remember what Charlton Heston said. Soylent Green is made out of people. That's right, Soylent Green. It's 100% green and 100% people. And coming soon, three new flavors. Soylent Red, Soylent Berry Burst Blue, and Diet Soylent with half the calories and half the people.
3: You gotta tell them, Soylent Green is people!
1: Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we are talking this week with somebody who, unbeknownst to him, has had a huge impact on my life for the last 40 years. He's Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter of Jaws, which is obviously celebrating its 40th anniversary this summer, as the first true Hollywood blockbuster of the summer. And it was really cool to be able to talk to Carl for a number of reasons, but mostly because of what we're about ready to talk about. Because we talked about what I consider one of the best opening 10 minutes of a movie ever. It's kind of like the missing piece of the secret sauce is that in the first 10 minutes of Jaws, we start to care about these characters and we start to figure out what's going on right off the bat. And there's not a whole lot of time spent developing things. I'm just gushing about it now. So we're just going to get back to the conversation with Carl. but, But before we talk about those first 10 minutes, Carl mentioned that he wrote a memo for Steven Spielberg about the first couple of drafts, the one that was written by Benchley based off of his novel, and then they brought Howard Sackler in, and he got a chance to look at those. I wonder if he still has the memo. Now, You, t- you talked about that you wrote a memo with your impressions of the, the drafts up to that point. What, what were your initial thoughts when you read the the were, there, that they were I, working with? I haven't, you know, I should exhume that memo. It's somewhere
2: <laughs> for my papers, but uh, what, what uh, I remember two two points. I, I was... I was totally wrong on one point. I was incredibly right on the other. In my first reaction, I said, gee, does the pretty naked girl have to die? is so much like a slasher movie. You know, you have sex, you die. You know, it's like a moral code left over from 30s Hollywood. And, of course, she does die spectacularly in a way that gets the movie rolling, kind of an unstoppable fact. So, you know, I was completely wrong on that. And the other thing I said was, you know, if we do our jobs right, people will feel about swimming in the ocean the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. Yeah, and, and, a
1: little bit right about that one.
2: <laughs> and and that's the comment I've gotten for 40 years from everybody who meets me. Who says, "Oh, you wrote Jaws. Boy, you know, after I saw that movie, I didn't go in the water. And I can't say, I know, I know because I've heard that, you know, 10,000 times, but you know,
1: I, I can't tell people that I don't go in the ocean because I have gone on the ocean, but my okay. wife is okay. You, but you're afraid of sharks, you, you know, you're terrified of Jaws ever since you were three years old, and I said, yeah, but when I go in the ocean, I just make sure there are as many people between me and the rest of the ocean as I can make, it. and I just keep a lookout. A friend of mine is a
2: comedian says, I don't know why everybody's worried. If you're in the ocean and you hear the music, get out. <laughs> right.
1: Well, John Williams made it real easy. I don't know if I mentioned this in any of the emails that we exchange, but one of the various jobs that I have is I teach screenwriting and every screenwriting class I teach, I show the first 10 minutes of JAWS and it's almost one whole class session where we just break down that first 10 minutes because that's like a master class in storytelling and setting up character and, and plot. And so you should be proud of the fact that I tell my class that Jaws was the greatest movie ever made. It's better than The Godfather and it's better than Gone with the Wind because that 10 minutes is the best opening 10 minutes of any movie that I've seen as far as getting information across to people.
2: In, in, in interesting you should say that because when I teach screenwriting, I you know emphasize to the class that the two hardest parts of screenwriting are exposition and dialogue. Everything else, you know, a novel, a, a journeyman novelist can do, a journalist can do. I mean, some of the great screenwriters in the history of movies were newspaper writing, you know, newspaper men, Hector MacArthur, to be specific. And, and uh, it's really hard to do exposition. And I point, I, you know, I point to my own work in Jaws and I say, here's, you know, here's a whole bunch of things. Well, and I was thinking about the, this morning, independently of this conversation, um, in the first 10 minutes, does he get to the
1: office? I, you know, I do, I think he does, because in my first, lesson, lesson first, we do the opening the first, scene, obviously, and then there's the conversation between Brody and his wife when they wake up in the morning, and he does get to the office, right? Because I, I do think the 10, 11-minute mark is getting fairly close to the introduction of Mayor Vaughn, which is like a turning point moment for me when I teach it. So, uh, right. yeah, so okay. I think he's already at the office, yeah.
2: Okay, so the moment with Polly is in there, that that elderly lady who plays. I, yeah, his, I'm pretty sure. Okay, I'm glad, because that that is a, another element of Spielberg's genius is the, because somebody, a, a British journalist asked me this morning, you know, what did I think? You know, why? did it become such a tremendous hit? I mean, you know, in hindsight, right? and and I don't want to repeat that answer, but you know, part of it was, uh, <clears throat> there's an authenticity to the actors, not just like the New York actors and the real actors. Oh yeah. But all the, all the supporting players, most of whom were locals and Polly was a local. And she's, um, if, if she were an artist, her style would be described as naive. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, You're right because everybody, all the all the kind of peripheral characters. I I know that you cast most of them on location, but some came out of not just real for that town, but they're all very real, three dimensional characters. Yeah, absolutely. So Polly, so now in in the first ten minutes of the film, you get, of course,
2: seaside resort. You get. Summer, summer kids having fun. You have horrible death. You have the sharks POV. You know one of the, one of the, the main antagonists. You get the antagonist's point of view, swimming through the ocean. Then you get the wake up scene in the morning with the radio talking about the regatta and with the New England accent. And you get the background of the characters and the family man relationship. The the little. Touch I love is when the phone rings and you it up and it's the wrong phone. It's the
1: wrong phone. I point that out. Nobody that I have shown that to ever picks up on that.
2: Right. Because the, the, the now you're thinking to yourself, you don't know he's a cop yet. Right. You know, you don't know he's a police chief. You go, well, who is it? Why does this guy have two phones in his house? Because in those days it was, you know, most people had one landline. It was, you know, maybe if you were a business person, you also had a fax line. Right. Or which you had two lines. But, you know. The, the, in those days, people had one phone, especially on the TV. So, two phones, you know, that makes him interesting. Now, then, he, then we see he's a cop. He gets in his Jeep and he drives to the office, past the lighthouse, goes, you know, we get more of a sense of place. Then he comes to the office and Polly talks to him and you realize, and there's a real authenticity to that, her performance in that scene. You, you, you go, All right? we are here in small town USA. This is amazing. Okay, so um so, there, so there's a, an authenticity of place and character that really, you know, immerses you in amity. And that's a very important to have a set place to be, to be drawn into the story. Now you care about what happens to everybody on screen, because they're
1: all real people. That's Carl Gottlieb. He is the screenwriter of Jaws, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this summer. I'm Jim Yelton, the host of Geek Universe, and we'll be back with more of my conversation with Carl in just a minute. But something else Jaws-related, for those of you who haven't seen it, if you're a fan of the TED conferences and some of the talks that people have given at those conferences, if you haven't seen J.J. Abrams and his talk that he gave several years ago, it's well worth going and finding it on YouTube or going to the TED website and finding it, because not only does he talk about the mystery box, and he talks about his creative energy and what he brings to a project, but he talks about Lost and he talks about Mission Impossible and some of the other stuff that he's worked on over the years. He also brings up that Jaws is one of his favorite movies, and when I was watching his talk, I remember thinking to myself, well, that's something else that J.J. Abrams and I have in common, but he brings up his favorite scene in the movie, which also is my favorite scene of the movie. And it's the dinner scene about halfway through the movie between Chief Brody and his youngest son, Sean, where Sean is sitting at the dinner table with his dad and he's mimicking him at the table. And it's just, it's a cute little family father-son moment. But it also kind of showcases what Carl and I were talking about as far as how well-rounded the characters were and how three-dimensional they made all of these people. Because even the minor characters, there's something going on in scenes where they kind of shorthand information to you but they also shorthand a lot of character moments to you. And it's just one of the things that I've loved about Jaws. So when we come back, Carl and I are going to be talking about the great Robert Shaw and his portrayal of Quint. We're also going to get into all of the other contributors that made Jaws such a great movie. So stay tuned. You're listening to Geek Universe. This week's show is sponsored by the Now Write Writing Guide series from Tarcher Penguin. Now Write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror is the latest book in the popular Now Write series, and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre. Are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest, or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ransby Campbell, John Skip, Joe Arlanes. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror as a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. When I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing, and you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods, like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to Jumpstart your writing. It's Now Right Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It's available on most Barnes and Noble stores on Amazon.com. Check out the website for more information. It's nowwright.net. Hey, do you miss the days of Space Invaders and Pac-Man? I don't know how many quarters I dropped into Galaga at my local arcade when I was a kid. Well, Gazapper Games has brought those times back for your Android phone with their latest game, Solar Rush. Fast reflexes and strong nerves are needed as you dash about collecting solar cells to power your ship, with the firebirds constantly on your tail can you advance through the challenging levels with lots of nice retro arcade action and over 30 levels to test your reflexes solar rush is a great way to turn your android phone into a pocket-sized arcade without needing all the tokens and if you like solar rush try out other gazapper games like galaxy storm and invaders from androidia all three are available from google play or you can get more information at gazapper.com that's g-a-z-z-a-p-p-e-r gazapper.com and Google Play.
0: You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 Minutes of
1: Hey, happy 4th of July to all of you out there in the geek universe. I'm glad you're spending part of your 4th of July weekend with us here. And you know, when I think about the 4th of July and I think about Independence Day, I don't think about barbecues, I don't think about fireworks, but it does remind me of my favorite president of all time. You know, you can have your Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves and got us through a civil war. You can have your George Washington, founder of our country. You can have your Kennedy. You can have your Obamas. My favorite president of all time is none other than president thomas j whitmore because i'm sorry the guy saved us from an alien invasion so when it comes to the 4th of july i always like to think about this
3: good morning in less than an hour aircraft from here will join others from around the world And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday.
1: Funko.com is the best place on the web to shop for those awesome Funko Pop vinyl figures. Specializing in rare and hard to find figures, PopFunko.com carries limited editions, metallics, glow in the darks, autographed, chase, and retired pops. All your favorite characters from The Walking Dead, Ghostbusters, Game of Thrones, The Big Lebowski, and many, many more can be found here too. They even have collector sets and a bargain bin featuring Pop figures for $10 or less. It's my first stop when looking for Funko figures, and now it can be yours too. That's popfunco.com. Well, we hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Geek Universe as we continue our discussion with Jaws screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. And you know, one of the things we haven't touched on yet talking to Carl is Robert Shaw. Quint is one of the all-time great characters in movie history, and he has one of the best introductions of any character in movie history. His opening to the monologue is, you all know me. Yeah. And as an audience member, I don't know who he is, he's, this is the first time I've seen him practically. And he's relying on the fact that everybody in the town knows who he is and he doesn't have to explain things.
2: Interestingly enough on on the Blu-ray, which is the first time they've included outtakes, one of the few scenes that didn't, did not make it into the movie that was shot. Most everything that was shot is in the movie. There's very little that was shot that isn't in the movie, except there was a scene in the, uh, Hardware store where yes. a kid is playing clarinet and Quint comes in to buy some piano wire, you know, you know, kind of menacing. And this kid is playing clarinet and Quint just stares at him and the kid kind of freezes up and honks on a clarinet instead of playing.
1: I I love that. If, if nobody's seen that deleted scene on the Blu-ray, it's worth getting the Blu-ray for because, you know, he he's enjoying the moment of other people being foolish. Yep. In fact, it was one of the things that I picked up on watching it today in the theater was there's a couple of just real quick reaction shots as all of the crazy people have come to town to try and collect the reward, and the harbor's filling up with boats and people getting ready to go out and kill the shark. And there's just a couple of quick reaction shots of the orca kind of drifting by. And, and you see Quinn up on the, the bridge, and he's just kind of looking and smiling. And it's just great because you know he's just like, oh, you people are stupid. Yeah. Well, everybody knows all of the problems that went on. Now, when, when you said earlier in the conversation that when Steven Spielberg drafted you into this and, and you went off to Martha's Vineyard for five months, you didn't know at the beginning that it was going to be five months. How did you think you were going to be there? Well, my
2: contract was for a—I mean, I, I knew it wasn't literal—but my actual contract was—I uh, I got a guarantee of one week for Writers Guild <laughs> for Writers Guilds Gale to do right. a dialogue to do a dialogue polish. That was my my contract, and that turned into this extensive rewrite that just kept going on until uh, you know uh, until we were done.
0: <laughs>
1: Now, obviously, you know, working on a movie, and you hear this all the time, that there's rewrites on the set, and, you know, there's things that just aren't working beyond technical issues. I mean, you know, everybody has story issues, and actors are coming up with things, and and the director's fine-tuning things throughout the process. But obviously, Jaws was encumbered with all of the massive technical problems it had, too. Everybody knows that the shark was a problem, but how many changes did you actually as the writer have to make to the script because of the shark problems.
2: Well, we had to create new scenes. Uh, Charlie and Den Herder, the two guys with the roast. I don't think that's in a previous draft, though I, I could be wrong. I, ha- you know, I haven't studied this film as closely as everyone else, <laughs> right? Has. Uh, so I, I am kind of you know not not completely equipped to, to give you a, an analysis like that. I, you know, everything need to be tightened. Everything. Because the love affair was between Hooper and Brody, uh, between Ellen Brody and and Hooper, was still in the script when we started filming. Really? Uh, And it was clear from, you know, first day of shooting that this would probably have to go. Because, first of all, you know, it's just improbable given the characters and the on-screen personas of the actors. I mean, Ellen Brody was such a nice person, she would never cheat on her husband. You know, and there was none of that frustration that was in the novel with, with her. And Hooper was played by Richard Dreyfuss, who was a far cry from the big suntanned Hulk that was, uh, you know, envisioned by Benchley. Who was more like Jan Michael Vincent or the young uh, uh, John Voight who you know who were actually being bandied about as casting choices before right, before we started rewriting.
1: Well, and that's one of the things that. Happened. Every movie, and it, you kind of think that sometimes times that sometimes movies end up with the cast that they were meant to have. Like when when you think about all of the various people who were either being considered or actually up for the three main parts in Jaws, it would have been a completely different movie. And it it's almost you know the Roy Snyder and Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus ended up in this movie.
2: Oh, it's it's, it's a total you know I mean. Uh, when we when I started on the movie, which was like two and a half weeks or 20 days before start of principal photography, uh, all we had was Scheider. We didn't have Dreyfus, We didn't have Shaw. I mean, there were offers going out all over the place. I suggested Sterling Hayden. who would have been great. Yes. Yeah. Sterling Hayden, character from Dr. Strangelove. That's Sterling Hayden. The, the, the Captain McCluskey Sterling Hayden, the godfather. And he's the only actor in the world who might have been better than Shaw because Sterling Hayden, I, I knew him. Ster, uh, Sterling was a, uh, as a young man, ran away to sea and was, in fact, a dory fisherman on the Grand Bank and became a movie star because he piloted a schooner from Tahiti to Boston with a crew of four Polynesians and himself as skipper and brought her around Cape Horn. It was an you know, amazing feat of seamanship. So he got his picture in the paper, and a local Paramount executive saw him and got him a screen test, and the next thing you know, he was making movies. 1939, 1940, but he had real background and a love of the sea and a love of working ships. He hated pleasure boats and yachts. He only liked working ships and wrote a great novel about it called Voyage. Anyway, so Sterling, but Sterling had tax problems and couldn't do a picture for a salary because the IRS would have seized it. So uh, Zanuck and Brown, out of desperation, went to Shaw, who they had worked with on The Sting, and they knew he was a good actor, and they said, you know, Please can you do the picture? We'll pay you a lot of money. So he said, Okay. Dreyfus had turned the script down. You know, he had been offered it early because <clears throat> he was a new hot young actor. But I knew him personally. We were friends. He was an impro- he had an improvisational company in Los Angeles that he worked in. So, you know, I I tracked him down and my, my wife tracked him down and called me in Boston and said, You're in luck, he's in New York. I said, Well, Greg, give me the number and I called him. I said, You gotta come up and meet with Stephen. He said, No, I passed on that script. I said, no, no, we're rewriting, it's gonna be all different. The part is great for you, please. So he came up to Boston for the day, <clears throat> walked in the door wearing those rimless glasses, a scruffy, scruffy beard, and a watch cap and looking like Cooper in the movie. And Stephen said, Oh my god, don't change the thing. You know, <laughs> you're perfect. And then we talked him into doing it. But that all
1: happened, that all just fell together. Gang, this week's Geek Universe has been awesome talking to Carl Gottlieb about Jaws. But Jaws wasn't the only thing that I talked to Carl about. In fact, during the conversation, we touched on his writing stint on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. We talked about his friendship with Steve Martin and how he started working on The Jerk. We got some great stories from Carl about his time working on the feature film version of M.A.S.H., And I even had to ask him about one of my all-time favorite guilty pleasure movies, Amazon Women on the Moon, which he was a part of as a director with the likes of Joe Dante and John Landis. But of course, Geek Universe is only an hour a week, and what do we do with the leftovers? Well, we put them in our podcast. It's called 30 Minutes of Geek, and you can find it at midnight-entertainment.com. And this week, we have all the geek leftovers from our Carl Gottlieb interview, so go check that out. I'm Jim Yelton, and you're listening to Geek Universe. This week's show is sponsored in part by GeekArmory.com. This is one of the coolest places on the interwebs for everything nerdy and geeky. They've got t-shirts, toys, gadget apparel, and knickknacks from Star Wars, DC Comics, Harry Potter, the X-Men, and and much, much more. It's holiday shopping season, and there's no better place to find something awesome for that special geek in your life. It's the favorite place to shop for the well-armed nerd. It's Geek Armory on the net at geekarmory.com. That's geekarmory.com. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton. And we're going to wrap things up with our special guest this week. Jaws screenwriter Carl Gottlieb and you know one of the things we haven't talked about yet with Carl is how amazing the crew was on this movie I mean 40 years ago Steven Spielberg was virtually nobody I mean he had done several TV movies he had done a lot of episodic television work he had one feature under his belt and then he did Jaws and you know when you look at it and you say well obviously this is a great movie because Spielberg directed it but at the time nobody knew Spielberg he had a lot of help from Verna Fields is the editor, and Bill Butler, the director of photography. And obviously, he started a career-long collaboration with John Williams with Jaws and we really didn't even talk about John Williams that much in this episode but I love the score from John Williams and it's probably one of my top 3 favorite film scores of all time and I am a huge movie music buff and so and it's and it's not even the Jaws theme itself that I love about John Williams score it's some of the quieter stuff that I just find amazing with the work he did with this movie. But we're going to go back to our conversation with Carl, and we'll talk about all of those people that helped make Jaws such a great movie. This movie seems like it's the the most collaborative effort into a, a huge, great movie that I can think of. When people think of The Godfather, they think of the great cast, and they think of Coppola. You know, when they think of Gone with the Wind, they think of the great cast. They think of the sweeping... Vistas. When I think of Jaws, I think of it in different terms depending on what my mood is. I mean, there's times where I think about the great cast. There's times where I think about the great script, the John Williams score. And then I think about things like all through the screening today, I kept thinking, this is one of the best edited movies that I can ever think of. And yep. Verna Fields did a tremendously great job on this. One. Yes, she did. And sure. Bill Bill Butler – Shot this movie. I was amazed. And again, you know, I said that it's been 40 years since I've seen this on a big screen. And, you know, my three year old memory is not as good as my memory of watching it on TV last week, but it was beautifully shot when you saw it the first time. Did, did you have expectations going into it, or after the horrendously long five month shoot and all of the the problems, did you think, well, if they're able to salvage something out of this, that's the that's the victory?
2: First of all, you know, I, I saw the dailies every day during the time I was on the vineyard, which was essentially all the dialogue scenes. So I'd seen the movie come together, and I'd seen it in in rough cut and fine cut, in looping ADR, scoring. So, you know, I I knew it looked great. You know that that I could, you could you could just see that, and of course, and the editing was you know, Stephen and Berna together. You know, it was inc- it was an incredible collaboration. I, to this day, it's the happiest film collaboration of my life. Uh, it was just every everybody worked together. There were not a whole lot of egos involved. Everybody was interested in getting the job done. That goes for bloodline too. The art department, Joe Alves. The production designer did an incredible job. Absolutely. And, you know, supervising the shark and then the guys who built the shark, Bob Matty. I mean, everybody put their egos behind them and just worked on doing the movie (laughs) for no other reason to get off the island and go home.
1: And you know this from from things that you did in your career after Jaws. One of the things that I love about it is knowing – the mechanical and technical problems that they had with the shark. I don't know that there's a bad shot of the shark in the movie. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of bad shots of it that were on the yeah, cutting mean, room floor, but as one. far as, you know, the way that they cut it together, the shark's great in there's, the final cut. I, there's only one
2: problematic shot that could have been cured with if CGI had existed in those days. But then CGI would have been used to do all the shark shots right. and would have had Deep Blue Sea. Uh, or what is it? There's another one that had a lot of sharks in it. Um, anyway, uh, it, and it's interesting because when I show this film to film students or anybody who's at least a bit knowledgeable about movies, introduce the film, I point out, I said, now, in 1974, when this picture was shot, there was no CGI there was limited green screen or blue screen chroma key in television. If you see it on the screen, it was li- you know it was it it, it's, it was real. It was live. It existed. It was shot in real time, and the audience applauds because they love that about yeah. the movie and the shark. It looks great in every shot except when this it's, it's the climax when he lunges up onto the back of the boat.
1: And I know you and. And Mr. Spielberg have both talked about this at length over the years that once you get to that point, once you get to the shark cage, that if you've got the audience at that point, then the roller coaster is almost over. So you can pretty much do whatever you want at that point and they're going to, they're going to buy it because you've gotten them that far.
0: Do you wonder what Jim is thinking about in between episodes of Geek Universe? Check out his blog, 300 words or less, at midnight-entertainment.com. Ready to find out what our host thinks about the hot topics of the week? It's time for Jim's two cents here on Geek Universe.
1: Well, gang, one thing you'll figure out the more that you listen to the show is that I don't have a problem with a little geek rage, a little nerd anger, but sometimes there can be some premature rage out there, and the internet was abuzz over the last couple of weeks with some premature anger on the part of people who are fans of John Carpenter. One of the biggest movie stars on the planet right now, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, has said that he is going to be developing a remake of one of John Carpenter's cult classic movies Big Trouble in Little China. Now, Big Trouble in Little China is probably one of my top three or four John Carpenter favorite movies. And you would think that since I've been so down on them remaking other John Carpenter movies, that I would have a problem with The Rock remaking one of my favorites. But here's the thing. If ever there was somebody that could pull off doing a remake of Big Trouble in Little China, I think it's The Rock. I've loved him since he started as a wrestler. I've been a big supporter of him transitioning into his acting career, and I've even liked a lot of the roles that he's taken on as an act. Do I think he's going to win a Best Actor Oscar sometime down the road? Probably not. But in his wheelhouse, are characters like Jack Burton. The Rock is one of those guys that's got the charisma and the humor that can also pull off the action scenes. And the thing about Big Trouble in Little China is Jack Burton, if you think about it, is not even the main character of that movie. So the big problem with doing a remake of Big Trouble in Little China is not The Rock. The big problem is who are you going to get to play against him as the other lead care. You need somebody strong to play Wang opposite The Rock's Jack Burton, or else The Rock's just going to steamroll over everybody with his sheer charisma. I do think they're going the right way, getting The Rock to star in this movie, and they've also got some really good writers who have done some work on some of the Marvel movies, so I don't think that this is something that we need to, like, have heads exploding over just yet. I know it's been a problem in the past. The Fog was disappointing. Rob Zombie's two attempts at doing a Halloween movie have both been pretty disappointing, and I haven't been real excited about anything i've heard about the attempted remakes for escape from new york having said all that though i love the rock i love this part for him if they're able to get it to work and i for one don't have a problem with them remaking big trouble in little china but that's just my two cents what do i know If you're a fan of Big Trouble in Little China, the one thing you need to go do is go to YouTube. If you've never seen the music video for the theme song from Big Trouble in Little China, and you've ever wondered what would have happened if John Carpenter had pursued a music career instead of a film career, this video will prove that he would have ended up in a band like Night Ranger or Kansas. Go check it out on YouTube and go to Facebook.com slash 30 Minutes of Geek and let me know what you think of the video. We better run,
0: We're running through the mystic night, We're running through the rolling fire,
1: That's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Geek Universe. Next week on the show, Kendall Ashley from the TheMarySue.com will be joining me to talk all things Walking Dead. Thanks to this week's guest, Carl Gottlieb. What an honor it was to have Carl on this week's show. For Rachel, our Android announcer, I'm Jim Yelton saying, To the Geek Universe out there, no matter where you go, there you are.
0: You've been listening to another exciting episode of Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Tune in next week as Jim is joined by Kendall Ashley of TheMarySue.com to talk about The Walking Dead. Find out more about the Geek Universe including how to buy Jim's new book, The Swinglers of Doom, all of our geek merchandise, our full archive of previous episodes, our 30 Minutes of Geek Bones feature podcast, information about our live shows, blogs, and much more at midnight-entertainment.com. You can also find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30minutesofgeek, or on Twitter using the Twitter handle at 30minutesofgeek. Geek Universe with Jim Elton is a production of Midnight Entertainment LLC and is a proud part of the GLN Radio Network. This episode is copyright 2015. All rights reserved.
3: Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. Read a book.